Well, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, if you haven't done so already. Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32. We're continuing a series through the book of Ephesians. If you are visiting for the first time, that's information. We're picking up uh, where we left off last week. I've called this message this morning, Cultivating a Virtuous Life. Cultivating a Virtuous Life. I'm going to ask you, if you're able, to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we listen for His voice in it and submit ourselves to His authority. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you now, as always, for your word and pray as we open it that you would speak to us through it. We know you have something to say to us, something in the way of truth and life, not just information. And so, Lord, would you open our ears to hear and our hearts to understand and speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. Lord, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your vessel today, for Christ's sake. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, this passage is, you know, absolutely loaded. Um, this is literally one where every point in my uh, relatively shorter sermon today, being a communion Sunday, every point literally could be a sermon by itself. I say that sometimes uh, it's especially true here, and I think you'll see that as we go on. Some of you may, uh, at the end of the service, be saying, oh, wow, I wish you would have said more about such and such. Others of you are thinking, brother, I never leave here thinking, I wish you would have said more. That is, that is never what I'm thinking. Today, it could be the case. But anyway, uh, we saw in the preceding verses, if that was me, I'm so sorry. I don't have any idea what I just did. In the preceding verses, um, verses uh, 17 through 24, we were told, if you remember, to put off the old self and put on the new. There's an exchange to be made, in other words. It is not simply put off the old self, but there's an exchange, put off the old and put on the new. That suggests 
that it's not enough to live a life with the goal of just being able to say, I didn't do anything wrong. As if we've lived a good and godly life by just being able to say, I didn't do anything wrong. Because we also have an obligation as Christians to do what's right. Failure to do what's right is in itself wrong. There's an exchange we are to make. You know, if you, uh, if you think about our lives, even our spiritual lives as human beings made in the image of God, we, like all created things, are fallen through the first human sin. And uh, in a sort of a uh, analogous way, by, by way of analogy, in other words, just like the, uh, the garden in the beginning, after the fall, began to grow weeds, that that's what it, it was inclined after the fall to grow weeds, so it is spiritually that in our souls, left unattended, uh, we grow weeds and not a garden. And so, if you pull up all the weeds, even in your lawn, if you pull up all the weeds, but you do not plant and water and cultivate a new lawn in its place or a garden in its place, if you don't cultivate something healthy to grow, it will only for a short time remain a bare spot, right? You pull up the weeds, it will remain bare only for a very short time, and if left unattended, the weeds will grow back, not a garden. Have you noticed that? It never just automatically grows a garden. You can pull up the weeds a hundred times and leave them unattended, and weeds will come back. Never a garden. If you want to grow a garden, you have to cultivate a garden. And so it is with our sins and our sinful nature. If we simply try to refrain from doing what is evil, uh, but don't cultiv cultivate virtue in its place, then what will always come back is maybe the same old expressions of our sin, if not the same old ones, new versions of them. But our sin, our sin will come back, not virtue automatically. We have to cultivate it. And so that is the, the sort of green garden we cultivate in our soul that supplants uh, the evil that we might otherwise be inclined to do, but doesn't, doesn't only supplant it, but produces fruit and life that it gives to those who would feed on it. And so that's the sort of metaphor to, to carry into this message uh, with the, the idea that if we are to follow Christ, uh, it's not enough to refrain from evil, but we must make a habit of choosing the good. It's, it's not enough as followers of Christ to just refrain from evil. It is not a matter of just the rules. Don't, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. You know, uh, it, it, is, it is a matter of um, cultivating virtue in its place, choosing the good. And so I just want to highlight through this passage several virtues that we're told to practice, either explicitly or implicitly, as we seek to cultivate a virtuous life. And again, I'm hitting all of these in a fairly brief way, and hopefully this big picture will be helpful as you go back and do a deeper dive even in your personal study. But number one would be the virtue of honesty. Verse 25 says, 
put away falsehood and instead speak the truth. I mean, it's, it, does, it, it says having put away falsehood, speak the truth. Uh, because we are members of one another. You'll see this in this passage, um, it's really structured this way, not perfectly or uniformly, but basically it says, uh, don't do this, instead do that for this reason. It, it, it gives us the, the negative, the positive that is to be replaced with, and the motivation for doing that. So put away falsehood, instead speak the truth, because we're members of one another. We share uh, a common bond, not only just as human beings, as image bearers of God, but even more specifically as the people of God, His church. We've been made one body. We are the body of Christ. And so our care for one another is a priority. Our, our unity as His body is His priority and is supposed to be ours. And so speak the truth to one another. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Keep your word. Follow through on the things you've promised. Uh, don't stretch the truth, bend the truth, rationalize not telling the truth. Say what you mean and mean what you say. You know, lying very often serves our own interest in some way. Probably most often, lying is self-serving. Uh, we tell lies in order to avoid punishment sometimes. That's probably the first way we learned it as children. You know, I, I've kind of used this, I think I've probably used this example before, but you know when your parent came in at one point, you, didn't, you weren't very old at all before you figured it out, and they come in and said, Stacy, did you knock over this flower pot? No, of course not. I, look at the look on your face. I know the right answer to that. I'm, I mean, I'm a young kid, but I'm not stupid. Because, because you know what's coming. If I say yes, I know exactly what you're going to do. And so, of course, the answer is no. That didn't take a genius to figure that one out. And so we learn it that way at a very young age. It's, it's self-preserving to tell a lie rather than the truth, and we carry that right on to adulthood. Sometimes it's to avoid punishment or adverse consequences in some way. It can, we can tell lies to avoid embarrassment, tell lies to gain advantage, maybe in a business setting, uh, we tell lies in order to gain acceptance. We want people to think we are something that we're not or better than we are, whatever that means. But lying very often serves our own interest. But it usually comes at the expense of others. We withhold the truth from other people and uh, mislead them and perhaps cause them to take action they wouldn't have otherwise taken or refrain from action that they would have taken if they knew the truth. It has an impact on other people adversely. And because we are members of one another and because we are to be preeminently, primarily concerned about the welfare of others and not just our own, uh, we need to be people who always tell the truth, who are ambassadors 
of the truth in every, every community that we live in, in our households, in our workplaces, in the church, all over, that we represent the truth everywhere we go. Don't rationalize dishonesty. Don't rationalize it. Choose honesty in its place. Number two is the virtue of gentleness or meekness. This you wouldn't see uh, maybe immediately. It's not stated explicitly, but I want to tell you why I say that. Look at verse 26 where it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the the sun go down on your anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not be sinfully angry. Instead, deal with anger in a righteous way and in a timely way. Why? Because you don't want to give opportunity to the devil. That's an interesting little motivation there, isn't it? Well, it's not a little motivation. Actually, it's a very big one. It's just a little statement of motivation. Don't give opportunity to the devil. He can wreak havoc in the way of disunity and destruction and division among the body. Anger is our reaction to something that's wrong and that matters. Our reaction to something that's wrong and it matters. I preached a couple of sermons where I've touched on anger more, uh, more fully. In fact, as I said, each one of these points could be a sermon in itself. I've actually preached a couple on that. I don't remember the exact uh, dates or titles of the sermons, and I don't expect you would go back and look at them anyway, but they are there if, uh, if you would be of interest. I think one of them was called Getting Good and Angry, and I made reference to a book titled Good and Angry by uh, uh, a man named uh, David Powlison. But he says that anger is our reaction to something that's wrong and that it matters, and so there are injustices or offenses. Did that just go out? This is really acting up. Uh, There are injustice or or offenses about which we should get angry. There There are right things to be angry about, and there's a righteous way of expressing anger. But most often, for most of us, neither our uh, reason for being angry nor the way that we express it is righteous. Most people do anger wrong, I would say, uh, most of the time. Not, not just I would say, I think people who are more expert at this than I would say. Because most often we sin in our anger. He says, be angry and do not sin, which means it's not a sin to be angry. It's just most of the time the way we do it, it is sinful. And we can be, anger can be sinful for multiple reasons. A few of them would be because we don't have a good cause for being angry. Sometimes people get angry because some, somebody held them accountable for something that they were rightly held accountable for. Uh, it's fascinating um, in this day and age, you know, I, having previously been a head of school, I can't tell you the number of times uh, parents got mad at a teacher for holding their child accountable for exactly what they said they'd hold them accountable for. Their child failing to do what the teacher said they needed to do for holding out to them the very consequence that they said they were going to hold, them out, uh, hold out to them, and yet the parent got mad when it actually happened. 
And I'm not picking on parents, it's just the example that comes to mind that illustrates this very point. Sometimes we can get angry about things that we're rightly held accountable for. There's no injustice done there. You're just mad that the truth applied to you. And so you're not justly angry there. You're, you're, you're the, the, very re, the cause of your anger is misplaced. We can be sinful uh, not only for having the wrong cause, but just our reaction is out of proportion to the offense in some way. Often in the, the sort of rage uh, that is expressed, the retaliation vengeance that we seek out or plot maybe for days on end or weeks even. In fact, that would really uh, roll right into the third way in which our sin or our anger can be sinful, and that is we hold on to it for too long. He says here, don't let the sun go down on your anger. There's nothing uh, especially magic about, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, if you got angry uh, an hour before sunset versus, uh, versus that morning and hold on to it all day and then deal with it at sunset. The point is, d- don't hang on to it. It'll become a grudge. And uh, nothing good will come from that. And even more to that, uh, to that point, it becomes uh, just the, the, the workplace of the devil. That is, un, un, unresolved, unaddressed anger becomes uh, just a working ground for the devil. It gives opportunity to him to, to create strife, and division and all kinds of discord. Division and strife grow where unresolved anger resides. So go ahead and deal with it. In many cases, maybe it's the majority of cases. In many cases, the way we need to deal with our anger is to forgive the one who's offended us. To forgive the one uh, who we think is the perpetrator of injustice because it actually does not require um, for them to do anything to resolve it. We, we are completely in control, many times, of just letting it go. And, and many times that's, uh, that's the remedy for it. And again, that could be a message of its own that I'm not going to preach today. But I said uh, that meekness is the, or gentleness, is the, uh, the virtue that we can cultivate as sort of the, the antidote for anger. We, we encountered that word gentleness at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. If you remember, uh, he said, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, etc. In fact, we could put humility with gentleness even right here because a lot of times the reason we're anger is be, uh, angry is because our pride was wounded. There's not been an actual injustice done. It's just somehow our pride has been hurt and we get angry because of that. Humility would help us in that regard. 
but meekness too, or gentleness, because as we heard then, meekness is power under control. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not indifference to injustice, but it's power under control. Again, if you remember, like a, like a horse, the word was used in ancient Greek culture that way, like a, a, a horse who is very powerful, but one who is well-trained is also very controlled, right? I mean, you can, you can get up close to a horse and recognize and appreciate its gentleness, and yet at the same time, how powerful it is. It's gentle toward you because it chooses to be. If at any moment it were to choose not to be, you'd be one, the one in trouble, not the horse. Power under control. That's what meekness is or gentleness. And so meekness supplies to us the strength to confront injustices where they need to be confronted, to confront the wrong that makes us angry. It gives us the strength to do that. In other words, not to just passively uh, cower and, and get you know, beat up by other people over and over and over. That's not a healthy response to injustice or wrongs against us either. Meekness gives us both the strength to confront it, but the restraint uh, over ourselves and our emotions so that we don't let our emotions control us, but rather we control them. And so cultivating that gentleness in our lives as a virtue becomes uh, the good that we seek out that supplants the evil of our sinful anger. Moving on. Number three is generosity and diligence. I actually put them in reverse order of what the text does because it says there, uh, let the one who steals steal no longer, but instead to work you know, do honest work with his own hands. Why? So that you may have something to share. You see, the thief has it all turned upside down, right? He is not only not concerned about sharing with the other, he's taking from the other for his own sake. Rather than working productively so that he'll have something to share with the other. That is, that is one example of how the Christian message turns the world's way of thinking upside down where we become concerned with the other more than we're concerned with ourselves and so don't take things that don't belong to you you learned that in kindergarten right but we need to be reminded every once in a while don't take them without uh, permission at least you know the person who steals again, has a variety of motivations for doing that, perhaps. He might be lazy. It's, again, hard. It has been historically harder for us to fathom in our culture people who just have a lifestyle of thievery. There have, there have always been those around, but it hadn't been very normative in our culture. In fact, quite the contrary. It is becoming more commonplace some places in the world, right? I mean, you see videos of this going around of people in certain cities just walking into stores, taking out bags full of stuff, knowing that nothing's going to happen to it. It's really hard for us to get our head in that space, imagining either people doing that 
or people allowing it to happen, right? But again, I'm not, I'm not here. Don't get angry. I just said, don't uh, be angry and do not sin. Don't, God, I'm not here to get you all stirred up about that. But it's just to say, uh, there are people uh, who steal because they're lazy. That is, it's easier to steal than it is to work. And it's why he says here, let the thief no longer steal, but instead do honest work with your own hands. That implies that he's speaking to people or about people who have the option of and the ability to work, but they've chosen not to. So for some people, it might be just laziness. It's easy, easier to take. It might be covetousness. You want the material thing that your neighbor has, and you want it obsessively, and so you take it. Or it may be envy. You don't so much want the thing your neighbor has, you just don't want them to have more pleasure or enjoyment or honor than you. You're envious of their status or whatever the case may be, and so you steal. There's any, any number of root sins that motivate that, in other words. But the thief definitely, whether he's lazy or he's uh, covetous or he's envious, the thief definitely lacks a proper concern for the other individual's welfare. Takes from the other for his own benefit. But if we cultivate the, the virtue of generosity, that is, we begin to make a habit of our heart to seek and do good for the one in need that becomes its own engine to drive us to uh, productivity and greater prosperity, if you will, because we become more and more concerned about the other. Not only would we refrain then from taking from him, but we would work in order to have something to give. Number four is the virtue of encouragement. I've used this word for lack of a better one, <laughs> uh, but edification might be the word that I would use, but if you look but not enough people always know what that means, but sort of building up. Um, but, but here's what I'm getting at. You, you look at it, it says, do not, uh, you know, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for the necessary edification of others or for building others up as fits the occasion. Don't speak words that are unwholesome and destructive and tear other people down. Speak words that build others up. That's the contrast we're given. Because that imparts grace to those who hear. Let your mouth become an instrument of grace to people. That's the charge to the believer. And so I say the, cultivating the virtue of encouragement or edification, that is, to begin to make it a habit of our heart to seek, to speak words that are uplifting to people. Some people are really, really good at this, right? You know, you, you are, some of them are here, or if, if it's not you, you know people like that who are just habitually encouraging, right? And, uh, and in some ways, they just have a gift for doing that, but also they've, they've, cultivated a habit of doing that. Just being good encouragers, being thoughtful, writing notes, speaking encouraging words, and so on. Our small group is uh, reading a book called Side by Side, and we were just in a chapter last week um, that touched on this subject. The Side by Side is a book written by an author named Ed Welch, if you were interested. But he said, 
As a general rule, we will not be able to have growing relationships in which we help other people unless we see the good in them and they know that we see the good in them. Let me, let me read that again. As a general rule, we will not be able to have growing relationships in which we help other people unless we see the good in them and they know that we see the good in them. And so, we'd be encouraged to cultivate this virtue of encouraging or edifying to notice the good in someone and to call it out. Form the habit of doing this. This, by the way, is, is very practical and attainable. From like We can get our head around. We might not consider ourselves good at that. It might be more uncomfortable to some people than it is for others, but it's something we can do. Like you, 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 could, you could begin to try to develop the habit of looking for something good to say and saying it. Even about people for whom the good things might not be the most glaring. Right? You, you know some people like that who go to other churches? Right? Uh, <laughs> none of them here today, but you know the kind of people, right? And I'm, but notice the good in someone and call it out. So their character qualities, their gifts and talents, their, even their preferences or hobbies, notice the things that, uh, that define them in some way that they consider important or value and encourage them, edify them in those ways. Make it your aim to build others up. That is a really, really worthwhile virtue to cultivate. And it will remedy a whole lot of other uh, vices because it will begin to re, uh, just recalibrate the way that we think about people and the way we speak to and about people if we, if we form the habit of speaking good rather than evil. And number five is cultivate the virtues of kindness and forgiveness. Verse 31 and 32 uh, could almost be sort of the capstone of this whole passage. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's a lot of stuff to put away, isn't it? You were feeling pretty good about yourself to that verse, right? Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander with all malice. Let it be put away and instead be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiven, forgiving one another. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. And you remember this is really the way chapter 4 started. Because of all the things that he outlined in the first three chapters of this letter, where he said, I want to remind you of how exceedingly gracious God has been to you. When you were dead, he made you alive. When you were far off, he brought you near. And that whole list, he did all these good things by his grace, he's forgiven you, and because of that, you forgive one another. You be gracious to one another. Because God in Christ forgave you, be kind and forgiving to others. You know, you could say that uh, to understand all of this, that we are to put away wrath and anger and bitterness and so on. Wrath is like our heated emotions. In fact, it, 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 wrath comes from the Greek word thumos, the word from which we would get thermos or thermal, the heat, right? So our emotions heating up, 
That's wrath. Anger is the injury done when it's poured out onto other people. And malice is the desire to inflict that injury. It's one of the reasons we want to deal with anger promptly. Because it, it will become a grudge and it will fuel the malice in us. But the, the, uh, one of the less familiar words, perhaps, is clamor. Uh, in my newsletter article, I made reference to the, to the, the word loudmouthed. I don't know if you, if you saw that, but anyway, uh, clamor refers to the sort of shouting and wailing that come along with all of these things, right? Wrath, bitterness, wrath, anger, malice, slander, often are shouted, right? Wailing at other people. And, you know, you could say that clamor uh, sort of continues to heat up the wrath in us and spew it out. There's one early uh, 4th century pastor named John Chrysostom who suggested that if you cut off the clamor, you really cut off the others, or at least, at least subdue the wrath and the anger and the, and, the, and the bitterness and all that kind of stuff. Is when you give voice to it in that way, it keeps it going, right? When you shout and erupt and express rage and direct that at other people, it, it, it just kind of continues to fuel all of that that's in you. And some of you, uh, some of us, know all too well how, again, how early in life we might learn that that's the way anger is processed. We, we, ex- we experience that way. And, we, and we, uh, we imitated it, right? That was modeled for us. You saw this is the way your, your, either one or both parents deal with anger. And you picked up on it real quick. And that's what you learned. And maybe by the time you began to learn a little bit better, you've already modeled that for your children. And they've picked up on it as well. And it becomes sort of genera- generationally perpetuated here. Clamor! Let it all be put away. All of the wrath, the anger, the bitterness, and malice. And in its place, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And once again, I would say, you'll you'll have to think about as a takeaway, because I didn't preach a separate sermon on every one of these points, you'll have to think about, in a very practical way, how can you practice being kind and forgiving? But you can practice it. I've suggested before, one of the ways you can practice forgiveness is just getting in your car and driving around town. (laughs) And, (laughs) I mean, all the people that... You know, just commit violations against you, cut you off, you know, run the red light, all, all the kinds of things that just happen driving around, you'll have opportunities to forgive. And if you, just, if you need some practice forgiving, that's one way you can go about doing it. But I'm really being serious that, that, that cultivating virtue means developing habits of choosing the good. 
And, and, and each of us has to identify where might be the areas of greatest need in our life, where, we're, where we feel like we're most lacking in some areas of virtue, and or which ones seem most attainable for us. I feel like I can do this and I can make some progress. I can be more encouraging. I can be more edifying. I'm going to begin to make myself a note and, and write some notes or make some calls or, or notice the good in people and make note of it. Maybe that's where it begins. Maybe before I even practice saying it, I'm just going to begin forming the habit of noticing in people and making a note. That might be the place where you start this week, but start somewhere uh, forming the habits of choosing the good because that is what we're called to, not just to refrain from what's bad, but to choose the good. And in so doing, um, to represent the very person and character of Jesus in the world and the love that we know through the forgiveness offered to us and the world, uh, the, the, uh, the love that the whole world longs to know even though they don't even know that yet. Well, let's bow together in prayer. Well, God, thank you for your grace to us and that you, through Christ, forgave us. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us how it is we need to grow in different areas of virtue and how practically we might practice that in any way. Uh, to begin to form the habits of choosing the good, of seeking the good of others, and ordering our lives in that way. We pray, Lord, that having taught us and led us, Lord, that you'd be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.